I want to read to you, ladies, um, a story of shame that was, that was relayed to me probably a week and a half to two weeks ago. And it started off like this. Her shame began early in life when at the age of nine, she was sexually abused by a teen boy. And she had been homeless up to the, at this point. Her mother, who was a single mom with two young girls, didn't have a place to live, so she moved in with a friend who had a teenage son. And while they were staying with this family, the teenage boy proceeded to have his way with her and her sister. At the age of nine, I don't know how many of you have maybe siblings, or I have a grandson, Malachi, who's nine. And I think about Malachi and just how naive he is at the age of nine. And I think about what would it be like if something like this happened to him at the age of nine. What made matters worse, when it all came out that this teenage boy was abusing her and her sister, the adults that found out proceeded to take her into a van and proceeded to yell at her, nine years old. And the response was, why didn't you tell? Don't you realize you could have got pregnant? She didn't even know what that meant. She didn't even know how to get pregnant. She had no idea. She never even had a period. And they're yelling at this nine-year-old girl. So can you imagine the shame that she took away from that? Whenever it should have been a time that the adults in her life pulled her in, hugged her, loved her, said, we're sorry this has happened and we will get through this, they proceed to yell at her. So what does she walk away with? The shame. But it didn't end there. Her mother had always told her, you need to get a college education because I don't want you and your sister to end up like I, like we have, like me and your sister have ended up. I don't want that for you. I want you to go to college. I want you to get that education. I want you to be able to provide for yourself and your family. And so off to college she went, where she faced shame once again when she was raped by the star football player at the campus. And whenever she goes in to the doctor, the clinic on campus, and tells them what had happened, and it's a longer story and even worse story than I'm going to relate to you girls right now. When she goes in and she tells the, the doctor what has happened, and she's like, what can be done about this? What can I do? Where do I need to go next? What do I need to do? She's told, well, you were drinking. So no one's going to believe what you have to say. So nothing can be done about it. They're not going to believe you. So once again, there's more shame for her to carry around with her. But she stayed and she finished her school. And she received that degree. She's successful today. In the world's eyes, she's successful. She has a great job. But she lives in fear. She lives in fear that others will find out about her secrets. Her own mother, her children, the people she goes to church with, the people in her small group. And how will they feel about her if they really know her and what she's done? She hears the comments that some people, even in the church, have made. I could never kill my baby. I don't know how anybody could do this. What kind of person does that? So she's tried, 
She has tried drinking. She has tried food. She's tried anything she can to numb her pain. She drives to work and she drives by the abortion clinic on her way to work. And it is so painful. She can remember the walk into the clinic alone to abort her baby. She can still recall the people standing outside of the clinic with signs. She can recall the look of disgust that she received as she walked in. She can still feel that in the pit of her stomach. So she will drive out of her way to avoid the pain of driving by it on a daily basis. She sees the billboards as she drives to work. She drives by the crosses that are placed in the churchyards. She dreads the anniversary date. She wonders what her baby would have looked like when she sees little girls that would have been her age. She can't forgive herself, so how could God or anyone else forgive her? These are just a few things that she shared with me. As we sat at Branco, across the table from each other. And these aren't just random words from a stranger, somebody that I don't know, I didn't know. But they're words of Shelly, my great friend. And she's going to be able to share with you some of the shame that she has went through. But the thing is, Shelly's no exception. Most of us carry shame, don't we? If I ask for you guys to raise your hand, and if you feel comfortable doing that, I would like for you to do that. How many of you carry shame with you on a daily basis? Look around. I would say 90% of us, right, carry that. And according to the stats from abortion providers that I've got on the looked at, 30, 33% of American women today have experienced abortion at least once in their life by the time they're age of 45. This is the stat that really got to me. Over half of that, 33% are Christian women, would claim to be Christian women. Another site says 73% report a religious affiliation. There's a site, I don't know, I didn't even tell Shelly this, but there's a site, uh, some of you are probably aware of it, it's called usabortionclock.org. And um, before we started the class, right before the video started, I hit it. And since we started this class, there have been 1,388 abortions since the beginning of the video that we just watched. And in that, as I was thinking about it, I was like, that is that number, 1,000, what do they say now, 406 babies that are in the arms of Jesus. They're in a good place. But that leaves 1,420 women who are hurting, who are in pain, who have shame, and they need somebody to reach out to them. They need people to love them where they are, but love them too much to let them stay in their shame and in their pain. There's only a, excuse me, there's only a select few who ever find the courage to discuss this past decision with anybody. And there's even, or even, not even just that, even to look at the loss in their own hearts. They can't even face it on their own 
in their own hearts. So my question is, if one-third of American women have experienced abortion, why is it that we rarely hear the women confess to this? We rarely hear it. Even at the crossings, and most of you that have listened to any speakers or have visited us or go to church at the crossings, you know we're pretty out there with our stuff, right? With our sin. Uh, we have women that talk about their drug abuse. They're very free to say, I was an addict. I abused drugs. We have a few that will even say, I was raped. We have some that, that, will, that will even talk about their sexual abuse as kids. But they hesitate when it comes to sharing the shame of having abortion. And I think that's because abortion is typically cloaked in secrecy. Post-abortion speaks silence. I mean, post-abortion silence speaks volumes about the shame associated with this choice. Other sins are shameful, but this seems to be one of the most shameful that we have came across at the crossings. Why is it? Why do the people, the women, and it's not just women, ladies, this talk could be given to men as well. Because we have men at the church who said, I would like to sign up for this class. Because I didn't have a choice, and I didn't even have to say. My girlfriend had an abortion, and I felt responsible. But why is it that they feel that we have made this sin worse than any others? And Shelly and I was talking about this, and Shelly said it's referred to as the unpardonable sin. John 8, 7 says, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Sin is sin. When we study the Bible with people and we're going through sin, don't we talk about that? Is there one sin any worse than any other sin? But we have made this sin one of the worst sins. Um, isn't there choices, ladies, that we all have made that if we had to make them again, we wouldn't make that same choice? But we have a hard time, don't we? Especially if the ones that have had abortions have a hard time understanding that. That it was a sin. And you are forgiven of that sin. Just like you would be forgiven of any other sin. Um, in the video, uh, when he's talking about to his son, I would love you no matter, how do you say it, what you have done or something like that. You, she probably hasn't memorized, but um, my girls in my group know that. Uh, one girl in particular in my group, um, there was some secrets she had been hiding. And there was a lot of shame behind the secrets that she had. And it was around the holidays, around Christmas time, and I saw her get up during church and walk out to the bathroom, and so I follow her, of course, and go to the bathroom. She won't open the stall door for us to talk, so I'm standing outside the stall, she's in the stall, having this conversation. <clears throat> and she said, I just, I said, what is it? What is it that you're hiding? What is it that you're protecting? I said, I want to love you. Do you really think I will ever love you any less for something you've done? It's not going to happen. God doesn't love us any less for sins that we have committed. He forgives us. He longs to forgive us. This, the scripture I just read about if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw what? The stone? You know who that was too? A woman that was caught in what? Adultery. She should have been what? Stoned. And Jesus comes up and starts what? Riding in the ground. And he looks around at the people standing there. 
And guess who's the first ones to walk away? The older people. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? They know their sins, don't they? They know they're sinful. And they're the first ones to walk away. So the thing is, um, while guilt tells us we made a mistake, I want you guys to write this down. While guilt tells us we've made a mistake, shame wants to tell us we are a mistake. While guilt tell us, tells us we made a mistake, shame wants to tell us we are a mistake. Ladies, Satan wants us to believe this lie, doesn't he? So how do we create an atmosphere of acceptance in order to bring healing through Jesus? How do we slay that giant of shame? What do we do? Well, to start off with, I just want you to know that it doesn't happen overnight. Um, Shelly has been around the church. She came to our first service, uh, so 11 years almost she's been around the church. Uh, Shelly's been a part of three small groups in the church. And I would watch Shelly, more from a distance for a while, I would watch Shelly take two steps forward, three steps back. I'm like, oh, she's getting it. She's, she's going to get this. She's going to do good. And then I'd watch her take steps back. So I watched her go through three groups. The first group, um, she opened up and she started sharing a little. Um, she felt pretty safe in that group. Then she was moved to another group. The second group, she started building up walls. And I see her, where's Shelly? She's not at church. Oh, she's not here this week. She had this to do. Where's Shelly? I didn't see her at this. Oh, she couldn't make it. Something's going on. What is going on? And I only find out a couple of weeks ago that she built that wall up after a statement was made. And the statement from the cell leader, the small group leader, was, I don't know anyone that has had an abortion. And I don't know what I would do if I found out. What do you think that did to her? It crushed her. Our words matter, ladies. Who are we to say that her sin is any worse than my stuff, than my crap? Who am I to say that? It's not. But the shame she already felt pushed her back farther and farther and farther. Her third grade is where her healing really began. She'll tell you this. It's a place where she felt safe, she felt grace, and she felt loved. And it began like this. Her small group leader in one of our small groups asked the question, which was Robert, is there anything you feel you could not be forgiven for? Robert shared, if God can forgive David for murder, for sexual sins, for adultery, for the death of his child, and if he can forgive the Apostle Paul for all that he had done in the murder of innocent Christians, of entire families, there's also forgiveness for you. And that's when Shelley said it out loud in front of everybody in her group that she didn't know that she could have been forgiven for her abortion. That night on the drive home, it was about a 45-minute drive for Robert and I. I received a text. And it said, I wish I had the text because I can't say it nearly as eloquently as she said it. But it went something like this. After 15 years, I go to bed 
and sleep tonight knowing that God has forgiven you. Little did we know that was the anniversary date of her abortion, a date that she dreaded every year. And what I want you ladies to know, in our shame, Satan wants us to believe these lies. But if you've had an abortion, I want you to know you're not evil. You're not someone who hates babies. You're not someone that can't be a good mother. And you certainly don't need to be called names by people who are supposed to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews 8.12 says, If God chooses not to remember your sins, why should you or why should we? It says, For I will, not, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. If God can say, I will forgive you of your wickedness and I won't remember those sins anymore, who are we to keep throwing it in your faces. You're forgiven. Satan's goal is to use that shame to destroy a person. That's why this goal is in all of this. But God's goal is to heal them and to help develop them, to use their pain to help others heal. I want to introduce you to a lady who is allowing God to do just that. Shelly leads our Comforting Rachel ministry. And she's here to share her story with you. Thank you, Rita. I think this is on. It's good to know. Okay. Um, okay. She has toilet paper if anybody. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can throw it to the crowd. Um, well, my name is Shelly Martin, and I lead the Comforting Rachel. Um, post-abortion recovery ministry at the Crossings Church, and it's one of our newest ministries, um, probably within the last two years. Um, and um, I just want to start by telling you that I, I am a crier. <laughs> probably will still see some tears for me, so just uh, bear with me, um, if you don't mind. Uh, I, I've told my testimony before, but it's usually in a really small setting, so this is um, a little overwhelming to me, but um, if you bear with me, we'll get through it together. So, um, uh, today we're going to be talking about slaying the giant of shame. Um, the video that we watched earlier is one that we play in our class um, on the chapter dealing with shame and guilt. Um, and it just reminds me of how I tend to run and hide under the covers when I feel guilty and ashamed of the things that I've done. I feel if I hide, then God or others can't see what I've done. I can pretend like nothing has happened, that I'm fine that I haven't hurt anyone, and that I can go on living a normal life. But in reality, the shame keeps me in darkness and bound to my sin. Secret sin is like cancer. The longer it goes undetected, the more damage it can do. The shame is my giant that I must conquer if I'm going to live freely, be set free, and be used by God. I know all too well about hiding sin and shame. I learned at an early age what it felt to be shamed by others and ashamed of the things that I had done. But before we get into my testimony, let's take a look at what shame is. In order to look at shame, you must also examine the word guilt. Guilt and shame go hand in hand. And as Rita mentioned, uh, guilt is, or guilt says that I made a mistake. It's an internal rejection. Webster defines guilt as the fact of being responsible for the commission of an offense. 
Guilt can be healthy, however, and can lead to positive behavior change. Shame, on the other hand, is an external rejection. It says that I am a mistake. Webster defines shame as a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety, a condition of humiliating disgrace. Shame is toxic, and it causes lowered self-esteem, feelings of unworthiness, and behaviors that reinforce that self-image. I'm bad, therefore I must continue behaving badly. When we live our life in shame, we affect our destiny or God's plan for our, for our lives. Isaiah 31 says, What sorrow awaits my rebellious children, says the Lord. You make, the plan, you make plans that are contrary to mine. You make alliances not directed by my spirit, thus piling up your sins. We choose to believe these shame statements instead of God's truth. If you knew me, you wouldn't love me. If you knew what I had done, you'd leave me. I'm worthless. There's no hope for me. I've made too many mistakes. I don't deserve to be forgiven. You fill in the blank. We all have our own shame statements that we tell ourselves on a daily basis. I, just from the raise of the hands, um, I know that you all have your own, own shame statements as well. So I just want to encourage you to recognize what you've been telling yourself over and over again and then read up in your, in your Bible and see what God's truth is. Um, replace those negative thoughts with God's, God's word. We are like the little boy in the video who won't come out from under, underneath the covers. We try to run from our guilt, but it always catches up with us because we can't run from ourselves. Three things we do with our guilt and shame. First, we deny it. We pretend it didn't happen or that it didn't affect us. Second, we drown it. We, we, I'm sorry. We resort to drugs, alcohol, sex, promiscuity, pornography, you fill in the blank. But we do all these things to drown out the deep feeling of sorrow and regret. Third, we deflect it. We blame others for our mistakes instead of accepting responsibility for our own mistakes. Shame comes in the form of many different things. Being overweight, growing up poor, being sexually abused, raped, struggling with alcohol, and having an abortion are just a few of the examples of shame that I can relate to. Three years ago, if you would have told me that I'd be leading a women's ministry to help other women overcome the pain and grief as a result of abortion, I would have thought you were nuts. You see, I had gotten baptized at the crossings and had been a Christian for over seven years, but had not yet fully surrendered all of my heart to the Lord for fear of being rejected, hated, and abandoned by God, my church family, my family, if they knew all of me, including my secret sin, that I had had an abortion. My life up until that point had been a lot of heartaches, hurts, and pain. My father left when I was a year old and ran off so he wouldn't have to pay child support. My mother was left to raise my sister and myself on her own. She had to work two jobs and went to night school to try to better herself. We were struggling financially and moved in with my mom's friend and her family. When I was nine, my sister and I were sexually abused by the friend's teenage son. There were lots of secrets in that, that house. He threatened us that if we told, we'd be thrown out, we'd be homeless, and no one would love us anymore, including our mother. So we thought we were doing the family a favor by keeping quiet and enduring the pain, shame, and abuse. 
On the day my mom and her friend found out, I remember sitting in the van, in the van, being screamed at by them, asking me, did you know you can get pregnant? Like at nine, I knew what that was. I hadn't had a period yet, I didn't know what sex was, and I didn't consider the abuse as anything pleasurable. I, I hated the way it made me feel and, you know, it, it hurt. Imagine the shame I felt after that day, like I was dirty and I had asked for this. Or better yet, I was the one that kept it, kept it going. I should have told someone, they said. When we got home, My mom ran after the son, and she tried to kill him. He ran away, and he ended up moving in with his dad. Nothing was ever said after that day. No police, no counseling, nothing. We had endured two more years of living in shame and enduring whispers from the other siblings the neighborhood parents, like we were dirty and white trash. When my mom had saved up enough money, we finally moved out and got our own place. There my life changed for the better. That was when God first entered my life. We began going to a Lutheran church and I became part of the youth ministry. We learned the rituals, but I still had no idea of what a relationship with God was really, what that really meant. We were involved in sports in our church, so life was good. My mom insisted that we go to college to get a good education so that we wouldn't have to struggle the way she had, has had to her whole entire life. So that became my purpose. At 15, I got my first job to help my mom pay the bills. My junior year in high school, I was introduced to alcohol. I began to drink socially on the weekends. I got really good at hiding that I was drunk from my mom. I still kept good grades and was involved in many activities. I graduated with honors and I went off to college. There I began drinking even, even more my freshman year. One night after being in a frat party, um, I was raped by the star football player, as Rita mentioned. Um, there's more to that story and I'd be happy to go into it um, if, if you're interested at another time. But Three days later, I did get up the courage to go to the campus doctor and told him what had happened, and he pretty much just blew me off, told me that I had been drinking, I'd gotten in the car, you know, there's no way I could prosecute, nobody would believe me, and I just felt like he had, had abandoned me as, as well. You know, I was like, really? He just gets away with it? And I have to live with the shame, pain, and regret? I ended up finding out that he did that to a lot of women on campus, and, and nothing was ever done. Feelings of worthless, worthlessness, shame, disgust, and hatred toward myself and others consumed my heart. I began drinking even more heavily and more frequently. When I graduated college, my boyfriend and I moved in together. After five years, we finally broke up. I found out about his internet pornography addiction and then he ran a major credit card debt in my name. I moved out and in with my sister. Then during this time, um, I began taking a weight loss drug that was extremely dangerous, um, especially to babies. Um, but as a lot of couples do, we had breakup sex, and I soon found out that I was pregnant afterwards, even though I was on birth control and hadn't missed a pill. 
When I told my ex-boyfriend, he suggested I have an abortion because neither of us were in a position to have a baby or even care for one. I went to the doctor and he suggested that I terminate the pregnancy since I was on that medication. He said my baby probably wouldn't survive or it would have major birth de defects and it would be very costly. So I went to Planned Parenthood to get counseling. I thought they'd give me all my options, but instead I was only told about the abortion procedure. I asked about adoption and they told me they didn't do that there. I asked where I could go to find that. They wouldn't tell me. Before going in, I had to cross the picket line of pro-life protesters outside the clinic with their pictures and posters of mutilated babies, signs of condemnation that I was going to hell, you name it. I went there seeking options and help, and the people that could have helped me already had judged me and condemned me. The ones on the inside just wanted my money. They didn't care what happened to me either. I asked to see the ultrasound, and they refused to show me. I asked if it was a boy or girl, and they told me they couldn't tell because it was just a blob of tissue. There was no baby yet. They told me this was the best option for me and that I could go on with my life after it was over. I asked if there were any complications from the abortion, physical, mental, etc., and they assured me that there were none. So I came back two days later with my $300 and proceeded to have the abortion. While inside, I changed my mind. I was scared. I prayed for God to help me find a way to keep my baby. I prayed he'd let me know if my baby was going to be okay or if he or she would have severe medical problems. I prayed my boyfriend would come in and stop me. I began to cry heavily. The nurse came in and screamed at me and told me I was disturbing the other patients and I'd have to leave and wouldn't be allowed back if I didn't stop crying. As I sat there and waited to be heard, herded in like cattle, I began listening to other women talk. I saw young teenagers in there frightened to death whose parents were forcing them to have an abortion. I saw an older woman who talked about this being her fifth one. Abortion was cheaper than birth control and she had no insurance. The other woman said she had four kids and her husband didn't want another one. I just continued to cry because I wasn't like those other women. This wasn't a mistake. I wanted to keep my baby, but I didn't want the burden of a child with special needs. So I tried to stifle my cries and went ahead with the procedure. It was the most cruel, cold, traumatic thing I've ever went through. The nurses and doctors were like robots. No pain medicine was given, just a little cocktail to relax you. I felt like my soul had just been ripped from my womb. I lost a lot of blood and was in recovery twice as long as all the others. Deep sadness and shame sank in. I walked out of the abortion clinic lost, lonely, and barren. My ex-boyfriend took care of me for two days before I had to go back to work, but couldn't. I sat in the parking lot for three hours before I finally called my boss. I ended up lying to her and told her that I had had a miscarriage. I couldn't believe what I had done and how was I supposed to go on living. At 27, I should have been able to care for myself and a baby. It's not like I was a young teenager. Somehow I managed to pull myself together. My relationship with my boyfriend was finally over and I began to put back the pieces by reading self-help books. 
I still drank a lot on the weekends and began partying a lot. I became really promiscuous and put myself in danger too many times to count. I didn't care anymore what happened to me and felt whatever happened, I deserved it. My life took a new chapter when I attended the very first service at the, the church plant at the crossings where my mom, Grammy Sue, attended. It was her birthday that day and she wanted our family to go to church together. Little did I know that the Holy Spirit was about to grab a hold of my heart that day. During the sermon, the preacher, Robert Cox, mentioned he had been sexually abused as a child, and because of God's grace, he was living and able to find healing and forgiveness. That caught my attention. As his sermon went on, he began talking about filling out a communication card to ask God what you needed to work on in your life. He said, maybe you, needed, you need healing from a past sexual abuse. Maybe you've had an abortion. Whatever it is, God can forgive you and heal your heart if you just give him a chance. After hearing that, I almost fainted, literally. I was seven months pregnant with my second child, so most everyone thought I had gotten overheated. But I knew in my heart that God was speaking to me through Robert. No one in that room knew about my abortion besides my husband and my sister. Therefore, it had to be God. That began a long journey of healing the hurts, habits, and hang-ups of my past. I began studying the Bible and got baptized the following spring and got married a month after that. I took the Wounded Heart Ministry class for sexual abuse victims several times. The leader had asked if I wanted to become an intern, but those shame statements reappeared and I felt unworthy to be used by God. How can I help others when I was so screwed up myself? If they knew about my abortion, they wouldn't want me to lead a group. I had a lot of anger, so I also took the Boiling Point Anger Management class. These classes helped me get stronger, but there was still something holding me back. Deep down, I knew what it was. I had confessed my sin to my first small group because I knew my secret was safe, but fear of exposure and rejection kept me from telling others. After being on fire for God for a few years, I began to pull away when my marriage was strained. My cell leader at the time made a comment that he didn't know anyone who had had an abortion and he didn't know what he would do if he met someone who had that was all I needed to pull away. Little did he know that there were two post-abortive women in the room out of six women in our group. I was no longer safe. Therefore, I had to run. I stopped attending small group and our ladies group. I was disconnected and my life began to fall apart and continued to get worse. A few months later, the women in my small group convinced me to go to a ladies retreat. I finally decided it was time to lay it all down at the foot of the cross and surrender my whole heart, mind, body, and soul to the Lord. We kept singing the, the song, I Will Change Your Name, over and over during the retreat. The lyrics say, You shall no longer be called, wounded, outcast, lonely, or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one. Faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. I desperately wanted to believe that I could have a new name in Christ Jesus. I was tired of being lonely, afraid, and a victim all the time. I was stuck, and I blamed God. After the retreat ended, I drove straight to a park near my house. There I began to surrender my heart to God. I 
I confessed my sins, even that of an abortion, and cried out to him, and he heard me. I screamed and shouted to him at the top of my lungs. I begged him to answer why he forsake me and left me all alone. Why didn't he stop me from having the abortion? Why hadn't he made my boyfriend step up and accept his responsibility? Why was I abused, raped, abandoned by my earthly father? Why, why, why? I kept questioning God. I was also listening to the Christian radio station at the time, and it was as if God was answering all of my questions through each of the songs that came on the radio. Then he spoke to my heart. I was there with you, my child, during it all. I see all. I hear all. You just weren't listening. I made you break down and cry and try to leave not once but twice. But you drowned out my voice. I've been here all along waiting for you, my child, to turn to me so that I can forgive you and set you free. For three hours, I cried, wept deep tears of sorrow, shame, regret, and asked God to forgive me. This is what having a repentant heart looked like. I finally got it. My life hasn't been the same since. I now hear the voice of God. I listen even when it's quiet. Before the retreat, I kept seeing the word grace everywhere I went. I wasn't sure the meaning of it. Then God put my pastor's wife, Rita, on my heart. For weeks, I prayed to God, asking what the two had to do with each other. Grace and Rita. Rita and Grace. Then I called her and asked her if she knew what it meant. Rita told me that I was now going to be in her and Robert's small group. Another answer prayer. Thank you, Jesus. I knew when I joined the church that it would be Robert and Rita who could help penetrate my husband's hard heart with compassion and grace. Little did I know that they would also help soften my heart as well. The next year, I grew, I drew closer to God, Robert, Rita, and the other members in my small group. Through our devotions, studies, and prayers, I learned the meaning of God's grace and that it was time to start my abortion recovery journey. I also learned about God's love and that it truly is unconditional. Just like in the video, God truly does say, Nothing you can ever do can make me love you less. After reading The Purpose Driven Life, I knew my purpose. My plan that God had for me was to lead a ministry that helped women and men find and accept God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy after having an abortion. On November 15, 2012, I decided it was finally time to accept God's forgiveness and His grace once and for all. We had our small group Bible study that night, and Robert asked if there was anything you feel you could never be forgiven for. I confessed about my abortion to the group. Robert explained if God could forgive David and Paul, he could forgive me too. How could we stand there and not accept what he has given us? It's as if saying his grace isn't good enough for me. That his son being beaten, bloodied, and dying on the cross was not enough to cover my sins. All I could think of was that Mercy Me song, I Can Only Imagine. I began, got to, vis I began to vision God standing there with, with, with his arms open wide, ready to receive me, all of me, and me falling on my knees in awe of God. I gave God all of my heart that night, and for the first time in 15 years, I went to bed knowing that I truly was forgiven and that God longed to have a relationship with me. I finally believed God's grace was sufficient for me, too. No more shame, no more fear. That night was also the 15th anniversary of my abortion, and for the first time, 
I didn't experience flashbacks in the anniversary symptoms. I texted Rita and Robert later that night, thanking them for helping me finally understand and accept God's grace. In January 2013, I began taking a post-abortion recovery Bible study and began bringing my shame out of the darkness and into the light so that I could grieve the loss of my baby, be reconciled to God and my child, and be healed. I then started studying to lead a post-abortion ministry. I used to hide behind my shame. I didn't want anyone to get to know me for fear that they wouldn't love me or would leave me too. That's why a lot of people are surprised I've been at the crossings for so long and they've never met me before. It took me finally feeling safe and loved so that I could trust God and others before I finally surrendered my shame of abortion. I still cry many tears, but no longer are they tears of shame. Now I cry tears of gratitude that the God we serve has wiped my sin away and made me a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. In an effort to protect herself, a woman may hide the secret of her abortion from those around her in order to prevent from being rejected, abandoned, or shamed even further. She lives in fear of others finding out. It's like she walks around with a scarlet letter A on her chest. Many women, m- many women and men have, have had a hard time accepting God's forgiveness after an abortion. They also struggle, struggle to forgive themselves or others involved in the decision. They've asked for God's forgiveness but have trouble receiving it. They regret their abortion and may struggle with feelings of unworthiness and feel they don't deserve to be forgiven because they committed the unpardonable sin, or so they think. So they hide their sin and bury it deep within their hearts and pull up, put up walls of steel so they cannot be penetrated. Most post-abortive women swear they will go to their grave with a secret, and many do. Forgiveness is not something based on feelings. We must believe we are forgiven and accept it as a gift from God. Wanting to punish yourself and not accepting God's forgiveness and grace is like saying to God that the sacrifice of His Son was not enough to cover your sins as stated in Romans 8, 1-4. What they fail to realize is this very sin that was committed was meant to provide relief or a way out, but instead abortion causes significant emotional, physical, and spiritual problems as a result, so that freedom doesn't last and instead they are held in bondage from their sin. When we recognize the sin and shame as our source of guilt, we can then apply God's truth to our lives. We must believe and obey the truth of God's word regarding our sin to be truly forgiven and set free. Three common fears Satan uses to keep you stuck. The first, the fear of our own emotions, that we can't handle the grief and shame of what we did. We ended the life of our babies. Second, the fear of how others will react. They'll hate us, abandon us, judge us, or reject us. And third, fear that being honest is useless. We've tried that before, and it didn't help. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Once you've accepted God's forgiveness, joy replaces the guilt and shame. Psalms 16.11 and 30.11-12, to paraphrase, David was filled with joy and given a new path in life. He turned his wailing into dancing and removed his sackcloth and was was clothed with joy. He praised and thanked God. 
Today I stand before you to let you know that you too can slay the giant of shame. You have a choice in slaying the giant. You can battle the giant on your own. You can run from the giant. You can allow the giant to paralyze you. Or you can turn to the giant over to God and allow him to overcome the giant for you. Isaiah 54.4 says, Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of your widowhood. What did Christ do with the shame of the cross? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, as stated in Hebrews 12.2. Jesus scorned its shame, he endured it, and even though he hated it. In what ways can you scorn or reject the shame of your past? The answers can be found in 2 Corinthians 4.2. We can renounce our secrets or our sins. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, By knowing God's word and obeying it. And 1 John 2.28 says that we can abide in him, be confident and unashamed. As we move from guilt and shame to joy, our eyes are off our pain. We seek the face of the Lord. God's direction for coping through prayer and in His Word and God's plan for our life. We earnestly search the direction God wants to take us so He can turn our sin into blessings. Three things we will do when we believe in our hearts that God has a future for us. We will seek God by calling upon Him, praying to Him, and by listening to Him. I'm happy to say that God has used me to witness to my stepdaughter. He put it on my heart to tell her about my abortion. She was a college student in Texas and I in Missouri. I could sense that something was wrong, but she wouldn't tell me. Over the next three months, I shared my story and wanted her to know how much I regretted my abortion. I wasn't sure if she was pregnant, but if she was, I wanted to let her know that we'd help her. I told her about the physical, mental, and spiritual problems I had as a result of my abortion. Finally, when my stepdaughter was 12 weeks, she called us to tell us she was pregnant and was keeping the baby. We now have a two-year-old grandson who is the joy of all of our lives. In addition, God has blessed me with three beautiful and healthy children, as well as two beautiful and healthy stepchildren. I'm still in awe, <clears throat> I'm still in awe how God convicted me to witness to, to my stepdaughter. We are now breaking cycles in our family, and I'm so thankful for that. Genesis 50.20 says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I don't know what giant you are facing, but I'm here to tell you that God can and will use an ordinary person like me to do extraordinary things, and he can use you too. By surrendering our secret, we can find freedom in God's forgiveness and grace. Nothing you can say or do can make God love you any less. Accept God's truth and not the lies of Satan. One last thought to ask yourself, what giants are you facing that is holding you back from being used for God's purpose? I hope you'll take some time and think about that and apply that to your life in slaying the giant of shame. Thank you.